to uh, Mississippi Speaks. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Devin Brown. Uh, I'm your new host, if, you, if you're wondering where this new voice is coming from. Um, and so Mississippi Speaks is being sponsored by One Voice. And uh, One Voice is led by uh, Executive Director Nishan B. Lambright. And uh, we're so glad to be able to have these two uh, guests on today to talk about labor in Mississippi. And uh, without further ado, I'll let our guests introduce themselves. Um, go ahead, feel free to jump in. All right, how y'all doing? My name is Sanchione Butler and I am the political coordinator with the Mississippi AFL-CIO. And I'm uh, Alex Comerdell. I'm the director of workforce policy at the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, uh, also known as America's Black Think Tank, uh, based in D.C. But, you know, obviously our focus spans across the, the country. So great to be here. OK, awesome. Thank you all for for joining us and to um, be willing to to talk about this issue in Mississippi, which is uh, really important and something that is desperately um, needed. Um, this conversation is something that we, we constantly need to talk about. Um, 20 years ago, and it's something that is still um, that is important today. Um, so if you could uh, just talk to me how what 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 led you to be interested in labor? <laughs> oh, well, my background, I come out of the auto industry. And so um, my facility in Dallas was the Dallas Parts Ford Motor Company, Dallas Parts Distribution Center. That's where I was first introduced to the union. I'm a second generation union worker. My father also worked uh, for Ford Motor Company. And so I've always been engaged in um, organized la labor uh, on that front. Yeah. And I mean, I have a similar uh, story, not uh, personally involved in organized labor, but my father was um, and still continues to be. Um, and I've been more focused on kind of the training side, like how do we make sure that folks get trained for good jobs? Um, and that is a focus for me because of personal experience of watching my loved ones not be served well uh, or not good enough <laughs> by the workforce system. Um, I do believe that, you know, folks shouldn't labor in jobs that don't provide family supporting wages and health care and like basic human rights. Um, and uh, because of that belief, I've you know committed to supporting and thinking about labor issues through our research and pol public policy, so. Awesome, awesome. All right, so we'll, we'll just go ahead and dive right into the questions that we have. Um, we wanna, don't wanna keep you all all day. Um, and so one of the things that about Mississippi is that Mississippi is a right to work state. Um, and this is something that we hear about um, just when we talk about labor. Um, Alex, could you talk to us a little bit about what is a right to work state? Like, what, is, what does that mean? Yeah, sure. Um, and, uh oh, okay, yeah. So right to work is, uh, has an interesting legacy uh, in this country. And it essentially is, is a way to dress up um, a racist cause as a pro-business cause, as a lot of folks have said, um, as who have studied right to work issues. It sort of emerged in the 20th century as a way to discourage collective bargaining in workplaces. Um, basically, 
a lot of uh, white Southerners uh, used uh, the desegregation of unions as a way to stoke fears amongst workers, uh, arguing that, you know, uh, white workers and black workers, you don't want, hey, white workers, you don't want black workers coming into your workplace and, and getting all cozy with you and, and such. Um, it was very, you know, uh, explicit at the time. Uh, in fact, one of the architects of right to work was uh, Vance Muse, and he once argued um, for right to work because by arguing that white women and white men will be forced into organizations with black African apes, and they will have to call brother or lose their jobs. Um, you know, and that is uh, why we see the overconcentration of right to work um, in Southern states, and uh, or at least its origins in Southern states, and it has had a very, you know, a terrible impact on worker organizing and collective bargaining in the South. Um, I'm actually um, in Georgia currently, where 3% of the uh, of workers in the state of Georgia actually belong to a union. And those membership rates are similar across the Southeast, where right to work is pretty much the law of the land. Um, so it, it it's, it's, a, harmful uh, uh, policy driven by harmful ideology tied to um, pretty explicit racist ideas. Um, and yeah, it's it's uh, one of the biggest barriers to advancing worker organizing and worker power um, in the South. And, and Sanchione, could you talk a little bit about, you know, how this policy has impacted the workplace environment um, in during COVID in Mississippi? Uh, yes. Um, in regards to COVID, um, I think that uh, most of the impact has really been on uh, our essential workers, our frontline workers, workers that's in the hotel, retail industry. These workers have really been impacted by COVID. Um, you know, they've had to make a choice. And I think we've had these conversations over the course of this whole pandemic to put themselves and their families at risk to say, okay, am I going to go in and risk getting sick because I've got to take care of my family, pay my bills. So it has been an impact, especially in that uh, essential worker sector. I thank you for that. And so um, excellent answers. And so as thinking forward, thinking in the future, um, you know, one of the things that I read about in, you know, I think San Antonio, I was on a call with you uh, earlier this year and they were talking about the PRO Act um, mm -hmm. that is currently in Congress. Mm -hmm. um, would Do you think that something like the PRO Act could address um, these, this policy, this right to work policy? And would it be beneficial um, for a place like Mississippi if it was passed? Absolutely. Um, what it would basically do is it it will allow uh, workers to organize in a workplace free from uh, employer opposition, intimidation, and that fear. And they would be able to bar, you know, go in, have an election without the company interfering in the election and be able to negotiate a first contract, you know, quickly without the company drawing it out year, like a couple of years to discourage workers about the process they just, you know, voted for. Okay. Alex, do you have anything to add? 
on the yeah. I'll just say absolutely. The Pro Act is a monumental step in the right direction, um, helping to break down barriers caused by right to work. Uh, We know that uh, workers in states like Mississippi with right to work laws um, are paid lower wages than those in non right to work states. They're also less likely to have health insurance, uh, resulting in higher uh, out of pocket costs for health care. Right to work states also have fewer workers with access to pensions and retirement plans, um, have higher rates of poverty and a lot less investment in education and um, higher rates of workplace fatalities. So the PRO Act seeks to basically eliminate all of those disparities that are reinforced by right to work um, here by basically bolstering the ability of workers to organize in the workplace without interference, like Sanchione mentioned um, here. So, yes, absolutely. I believe the PRO Act is the, uh, the answer uh, for now. <laughs> <laughs> and then I also just want to add in regards to the right to work. Uh, In 1954, Mississippi became one of 15 states to enact the law. And today there are 28 right to work states. And, you know, just me being a former union organizer, I know that workers in the past have said, well, how do you know? Are you sure we're going to be able to to form our union because we work in a right to work state? And I always explain to those workers what it means is you can have a union you can have a union in your facility and you can you you don't have to be a member you don't have to pay dues but you still reap the benefits of the union contract that was negotiated so i think we tend to put a lot of fear on that word right to work and we just need to start trying to you know inform workers that they can have a union contract in their workplace they just don't have to be a dues paying member and then you explain to them by not being a dues paying paying member they will not have the ability to vote on a con to vote on what's inside of that negotiated agreement okay that's a that's a great point and uh you said something that made me think about you know there may be some people listening that may not may not know what a union is um could you uh and Santione feel free to go first just explain what a union is and the benefits of having a union in the workplace. Uh, what a union is, is a group of workers. They come together and they will have to, a say in their wages and working conditions. As you know, as the gentleman t- talked about being able to negotiate a benefits package, what would my health care look like? Would I be able to have a defined pension plan, not a full 1K that the company may, may or may not contribute to, but a defined pension plan that the company has to pay into? And when you retire, that's monies other than a Social Security check that you would be getting. Alex, do you have anything to add? Yeah, uh, plus plus on, on all of that. Just um, some interesting statistics regarding union membership. So we view it, you know, as since we are focused on Black communities at the Joint Center, in particular across the Black rural South, um, we view union membership as an important strategy to achieve racial equity and racial justice mm-hmm. across the labor movement. Uh, we know that black workers are more likely than white workers to join unions. And because of that, uh, unionized black workers make 14 percent more in wages compared to their non-union peers. 
Um, so I think the, the premium of being part of a union is clear in terms of uh, improving economic mobility for, for workers, um, which makes it such a shame that, you know, we have policies in place that uh, that that disincentivize and try to destabilize uh, the labor movement across the South. But to Sanchoni's point, we have examples of strong labor power growing in the, across the Southeast. And a lot of people don't know that. Right. Like they don't know. They think because it's the South, they think because it's Mississippi, there isn't a lot of labor power there. And I think that um, even in recent years, we've seen a lot of examples of or worker organizing that would prove that to be not true. Um, folks are kind of stepping up in opposition to or in the with with the threat of right to work, uh, regardless of the threat of right to work and at will employment and all of that to organize in the workplace or even outside of the workplace in their communities, particularly in in uh, for democracy in terms of voting and, and getting members out to vote in uh, local, state and federal elections and um, stuff like that. So. Uh, so, yeah, th those are some of the, the benefits um, as well that uh, and I think it's just such an important tool uh, for for helping us uh, advance racial justice. And I also want to just add one other point. Um, last week, the Mississippi Black Women's Roundtable had uh, hearings over at the Capitol with the Senate Labor Committee. And one of the things that, that that meeting was about was equal pay. So I just want to add that when you have a labor union contract in your workplace, that issue is you everybody going to get paid the same across the board. It doesn't matter your your ethnicity, whatever that job description is. If if that per, if you're a uh, just say assembly line worker, every male, female assembly line worker, if the starting pay is $20, everybody makes the starting pay. There is a bidding process that if you would like to work your way up the food chain, there is language incorporated in that to where you can't be discriminated if you're applying for a better job within that facility. So it makes that make it more of a fairer process and it eliminates the pay disparities uh, with other folks inside the factory. That's the benefit of having a union contract. Yeah, those are those are excellent points. And the reason I ask is that, you know, we we typically hear people talking about it on the news, but I don't think I've ever heard anyone break it down for me. I just know it was something that we needed. But the nuts and bolts of it, I'd never really heard. And I'm sure there are other people who are in a similar uh, situation explain, you know, why it's so important, and particularly like a place like Mississippi, where you have a large uh, black labor force, um, why this is important, not only for just uh, ethnicity, but even gender that you brought up um, mm -hmm. last week at the Capitol. Um, I followed the hearing live. And so it's something that is desperately needed. And I think one of the presenters actually worked at a factory. I think she talked about how she was, um, getting paid unequally compared to her uh, colleagues. And when she uh, was, I think, in, in a senior position. Um, so definitely, definitely something I think is necessary here in Mississippi. And to, to switch gears a little bit. So, you know, one of the things about Mississippi um, that, you know, our governor sometimes makes a decision that makes us scratch our heads and, and you know, like, why, why would you do that? And so one of those things was over the summer, uh, Governor Tate Reeves, um, announced that Mississippi would no longer accept supplemental unemployment benefits mm -hmm. uh, from federal from the federal government 
um, that were designed to offer relief to unemployment workers because who were impacted by um, the pandemic. Um, what has been the impact just in you know your um, work and just from you being around um, the state and working in labor, the impact of ending a subsidy like this? Because I know other Southern Republican governors did the same thing. Um, what's been the impact of this? And um, does a place like Mississippi need Missis uh, unemployment program reform? And uh, Santione, feel free to go first. Yeah, I, I actually just thought it was uh, it was very sad because I know, unfortunately, a lot of Mississippians depended on that uh, that stimulus, that extra benefit. And so that goes to show you that we really do have a problem here in the state in regards to there has to be a, a fight taken on about raising the minimum wage to a livable wage. And um, just it, it, it was it was astounding with that hearing last week where they did talk about how they, it, it was like the statistics that was thrown out was a really one-sided and they, and it also alluded to people really, they were making it seem like at that hearing that people didn't want to go and return back to work because of the extra monies that they were getting. But until we address the underlying issues in regards to paying people for their labor truly that's what's going to help lift mississippians out of poverty and have a better life yeah that's right i i, I the so it was uh abysmal what the governor there did uh tate reeves um along with other uh southern republicans i believe all republican-led states ended their supplemental uh benefits early before the uh september uh, expiration of unemployment insurance. Um, look, it, I mean, it, it affected me, you know, personally. So my father is, you know, on the coast there is uh, in Gulfport, well, Long Beach specifically, since I think I'm talking to family, they know where these places are. Um, <laughs> uh, and is an artist, uh, performs at the casinos. Uh, he's a part of a band, but he also does, you know, stage setup. Yeah. Um, so he's part of the entertainment industry. And whenever COVID hit, um, and there was no uh, eligibility for state regular state unemployment insurance because you have to be a wage W-2 employee to be eligible for the state's uh, uh, unemployment insurance. Uh, he, you know, was kind of like out on, on a limb there and didn't have anything until uh, the CARES Act passed and we uh, got the federal uh, creation, the creation of the federal benefit for gig workers, for independent contractors, etc., um, and the unemployment boost to support them. And there are thousands and thousands of people who are not regular wage W-2 employees that benefited from the creation of that new program. And we're not only using it to pay like their day-to-day -day expenses, like food, groceries, uh, uh, you know, maybe catching up on some bills, but we're also using that money to pay things like healthcare costs because they no longer had access to employer-sponsored health coverage. Um, or paying for internet because they had to keep the internet running to keep their kids um, connected to online learning. So uh, I think that what was behind the decision to remove the benefit or end participation in the federal benefits was what was already shared, was this idea that people don't want to go back to work, that people are lazy. Um, 
Mind you, we're facing and still continue to face a public health emergency that's having an outsized impact on this nation's poor, as well as disproportionately on black and brown folks and on uh, on, on the elderly. And folks in Mississippi are overrepresented in occupations and jobs where they have to interface with people in retail, in hospitality, um, certainly across the manufacturing industries, particularly in the plants where you have to be like on the assembly line with your fellow coworkers. And these were epicenters for the spread of COVID-19. So we're, losing, we're lacking the appropriate safety and health standards to protect workers. And we're also lacking the economic support to help workers who can't continue on in those environments. And it was one of the most um, short-sighted uh, policy choices that could have been made, I think, in, in recent history to end uh, participation in that program. And what we are seeing now is that the uh, ending the Mississippi's participation in those benefits is not yielding or providing the same results that they argued would happen in terms of employment. So we're seeing that there isn't a significant jump in employment uh, because there's no longer unemployment insurance, uh, extended unemployment insurance there. Um, you know, so this idea of a labor shortage, uh, correcting or fixing the labor shortage by ending uh, participation in the federal benefits, uh, it, it didn't work. It was a failed, you know, policy choice. And as a result of that, uh, you know, people have just suffered and have been made worse, um, you know, adding the layer of like the expiration of the eviction moratorium and like so many other things have just compiled on top of folks. Um, um, but unemployment insurance was a bridge. And uh, again, it was a short-sighted, um, uh, frankly, uh, uh, foolish uh, policy choice uh, to make. So I can go on all day about that, but I'll, I'll stop there. But I... I do believe that, you know, just just with a couple of things that you said, but when, when you talk about how it did help the average American live to see another day, there definitely needs to be some reform around the unemployment uh, benefit. And this could be like a test model, in my opinion, in regards to that. I mean, we had a we had something catastrophic happen. And it, we need to look at revising the law to where if if there's a, something like this ever happens again, there needs to be extension of benefits, possibly, you know, to help people who may we might get in a situation where we have to something happens and we can't get out and go to work. So I, I definitely think that we need to take a serious look at, at uh, reforming uh, the unemployment not only here in Mississippi, but I think, you know, across the nation, there needs to be some some changes to that. To yes. that. The, the reform overdue, like, especially when it comes to the benefit amount, Mississippi has the lowest, among the lowest unemployment insurance benefit amount without the extra federal benefit. I mean, without the extras, the supplemental benefits, my dad got $100 a week, $100. And that's, you know, nothing compared to what he was making before. Um, if you in, in thank God there was the supplemental benefit. And if that is, you know, an acceptable uh, benefit amount for workers who are displaced because of reasons that have nothing to do with them, then it's time to definitely revamp and uh, rethink um, 
the state unemployment insurance system as a form of the safety net. Um, there are a lot of discussions now happening, uh, debates around whether states should even be in control um, of unemployment insurance. Should it be more of a federal uh, operated system? Understanding that because states have such immense flexibility, they uh, various states driven by different political ideologies choose to treat the system differently. Um, statistically, black folks, uh, the more black folks there are in a state, the more hostile and more limited unemployment insurance benefits are. Yeah. And that there's a reason for that. I mean, there's history here, right? right. Um, so, you know, should states that have a long legacy of racial discrimination and, uh, and, uh, and treating, you know, poverty as, you know, just kind of like putting it on the back burner, being in control of unemployment insurance, that's, you know, it's a policy question that is um, a big debate in Congress right now. Yeah, that is that is an excellent point, and um, I think something that you uh, that you mentioned that got me thinking thinking about the governor and his reasoning. Um, you said labor shortage, and you know, working in communications, you know, you see the attack on on workers, um, mm -hmm. just not only from you know state leaders and politicians, but you go to any business or you go to a restaurant, right? You're going to see a note taped on the door or something like that um, talking about, you know, we don't have enough people to work. Um, could you speak a little bit um, to that about why, you know, this was a failed and, you know, why, what could be some reasons that people are deciding to um, look for better options and, and no longer um, want to um, work, you know, long hours for, for low pay. Um, and, and Alex, you can take a stab at it first. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, that's one earlier, right? Like people don't want to work for, for low wages. Um, people don't want to work in jobs that keep them in poverty. Um, you know, Mississippi is a state where uh, economic development happens. Businesses are lured to the state. Um, and for, for no, and there's no incentive for them to actually pay their workers a, a livable, sustainable wage. Um, I'm not, I'm sure Sanchioni knows this. I remember, you know, I used to party up in, in Jackson and like travel through that part of the state and pass through the Nissan plant area and, and just hear the stories all the time of how folks, you know, are disrespected in the workplace and, uh, don't have, you know, uh, enough support, uh, paid leave, uh, to care for their loved ones and, um, and other benefits that are necessary during this time, uh, they're not why these things are not widely available. Um, so why go back to an employer uh, that will exploit you, exploit your labor just so that they can make a profit? Why do that? And then two, this, the other big thing is I, you know, I, I love Mississippi. I'm not bashing it, but it's no, there's no surprise that the public health infrastructure is fra fragile. And why put, Myself, you know, as a, as a worker in harm's way, whenever this virus is still, you know, ravaging my community, right? And where vaccine take up is, is really low. And, you know, masking requirements are non-existent in so many places. Like, it's just, there are so many factors that would make a lot of workers hesitant to re-enter the workforce. I will say that caregiving 
is one of the most significant barriers to returning back to work. Um, you know, and it's not just caring for kids, it's also caring for aging older or aging loved ones, um, other family members that have health risks. Um, and, and that needs to be addressed uh, because you can't go to work and leave your kids or other folks that you have to have a responsibility to care for on their own. Uh, and that's why paid leave is so important and, and paid sick days and, and family leave. And uh, we don't have universal access to, to those benefits right now. Um, so, so yeah, so those are, those are the things that um, I think are not factored into the labor shortage debate. All we hear is just, well, we need more workers. Employers need more workers. Corporations need more workers. I have, you know, something to tell you. I mean, people have been using the term labor shortage for decades. There's been a labor shortage for forever. Okay. And we use these moments of, of uh, crisis to kind of, and we manufacture new narratives to basically justify not maintaining unemployment insurance, not raising wages, not expanding pay leave. Um, and, you know, it's kind of been a, a cycle um, for decades. So, so yeah. So I want to just uh, put a little caveat on that when you talk about shortage in the labor force. For me, my thinking has been this coronavirus has it's it's doing a it's it's a it's a shift a mind shift to me i see worker empowerment to a sense because when you talk about that low wage worker and these companies are saying we don't have enough people what they're being forced to do is stop being greedy and wanting all of the profits for themselves and now all of a sudden you can go to a gas station or I, I, I travel and like if y'all ever heard of Bucky's, these are jobs that people would probably make minimum wage. But now they have big signs outside saying we'll start you at $15 an hour. We're offering health care benefits. We're offering signing bonuses. This is the start of something yeah. to to make the government and these states get off of this $7.25 and pay people what they're worth. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I agree. That's an excellent point. And I, and I like the, the reframing of worker empowerment. Um, and it's a mindset change because I think one of the things that uh, like Republican governors in the South have done is um, with messaging is try to attack and say, you know, people are lazy and people don't want to come back to work. And reality is that, you know, what both of you said, people are seeing that, you know, they're getting paid little to risk their lives, you know, not only with COVID, but just in terms of um, not being able to provide for their family. And so something has to change and we're seeing it. We're seeing that these companies can yeah. offer more money and they can offer more incentives um, but like you said, Santioni, perfectly, um, they've been greedy and it's time for them to to um, to stop. All right. Let's let's talk a little bit about um, about health. I, both of you have brought it up um, uh, multiple times. And so, you know, Mississippi, of course, has suffered uh, from poor health outcomes 
um, just in general, but with, with COVID, you know, we've been um, hit pretty hard, um, really hard. And so, you know, how important is it for um, people to have paid sick leave um, at these jobs and for just in jobs in general? Um, and so have you seen any negative impacts of not having paid sick leave? And Santiano, you can start us off uh, with your answer. I, I have seen negative impacts because I've actually spoken to workers that's on the front lines and essential who has gotten COVID. And it's like the company knows that these people are supposed to be off for 10 days and or however long, whatever the incubation period for, you know, it really is 10 days. But by the time you get to that ninth and 10th day, if that worker is still feeling sick, not to mention they probably won't get paid. The, the ones that I've talked to didn't get paid while they were off for the 10 days. But the company still putting that pressure on them, even though they're ill or the family member that, that they or kid is ill, they still making these people make a choice in regards to returning to work. I think every worker has they they every worker should have access to paid sick leave. They should have access to health care benefits. Yeah, and she said it perfectly. I mean, you know, <laughs> we're like the only industrialized nation that does not offer these these benefits to all workers universally in terms of paid family leave and paid sick days. Um, and, you know, it's definitely led folks to be hesitant, like I said earlier, to return to work. Um, but it's also caused folks to labor in jobs through their diagnosis, through COVID, or, you know, not have the option to go and get tested. You know, a lot of people blame uh, workers, uh, particularly workers of color, for not getting vaccinated or and they're saying, oh, it's because of misinformation and they don't, you know, they're, they're conspiracy theories. And I'm not going to, you know, I mean, yeah, we have, I'm sure we've all heard some crazy stuff. But a big reason is that a lot of folks can't take off during the day and go and get vaccinated or go and get a COVID test. It's, it doesn't work like that for everybody. Um, and not a lot of employers have created uh, policies and procedures that even allow folks to take 30 minutes to an hour so they can do that. I mean, a vast, a vast amount of our workforce can't even take 30 minutes uh, more than 30 minutes for a lunch break, you know, <laughs> outside of what the actual labor law, federal labor law uh, requires. So um, I think, uh, you know, it is it's paramount to our uh, to workers economic mobility, but also it's a public health issue um, because you got folks who are not able to care for themselves, but they also can't care for their families and their kids are going to school, you know, uh, potentially carrying COVID and other things. I mean, and this all predates COVID-19 too, um, which is uh, why I'm happy that the paid leave conversation is in the spotlight like it is right now. I think there is a sea change. I think that we are starting to see, in, like we were talking about wages earlier, a lot of employers change their perspective on the leave issue, and certainly in um, in in Congress uh, at the federal level, the perspectives are starting to shift uh, slowly there as well. Recognizing that we can't be a, can't even consider ourselves a thriving nation 
if we can't guarantee this very basic humane um, benefit. So, yeah, excellent, excellent point. Um, and we're we're to the to the last to the last question. Um, and this one I think is is something that I've been thinking about um, just in hearing both of your answers. You know how how can we continue to um, build a strong labor movement here in Mississippi? And particularly, I'm thinking about you know myself and uh, my friends. And so you know, I had an uncle who worked at a steel plant on the coast. Um, was a part of a union, so that was my introduction to that. And uh, you know, my dad worked in manual labor my entire life. But someone like me who goes off to college and um, works in communications, and so. You know, every job that I, uh, I I get or I apply for pretty much has a union in the sense that it's national. I think even one job even offers, you know, mental health benefits. It'll pay for me to go to the gym. And that's so far from the reality of workers here in Mississippi. So, you know, how can we continue this? And even, you know, for folks like myself, um, you know, how can we get involved in, and continue to support a, a stronger labor movement here in Mississippi? Uh, I'll go. I'll go. I'll just say, you know, for me, uh, being a union organizer and I've worked across the South for the last 16, 17 years. What I find is Southern workers, they want a voice in their workplace. They want a union. And I kind of particularly noticed a trend with the the younger Southern worker really being interested in how can I get that voice? I think it's important for the labor movement as a whole to continue to foster relations, to foster those relationships grassroots roots wise with, you know, various community groups, uh, clergy. They're going to have to get in front of any legislation um, and bills that's going to work against working Mississippians. And I, I think that that's a start. That's what I think needs to happen to build a stronger labor movement in Mississippi. Yeah. And for me, anytime that there's been uh, a policy proposal or something that would either hurt or help workers, uh, the AFL-CIO has been there and their membership, their affiliates have been there in the Capitol or wherever. And as a member of many worker coalitions and labor organizations that do research and advocacy, it's always been important to take their lead in terms of their messaging and their communications about an issue and to also engage with their calls to action. Um, so I you know, say follow Sancioni and the, the AFL-CIO um, because they have been, I mean, we don't have time to get into it, but just historically have just been at the fore of, of improving worker condition, working conditions in this country. Um, so and anybody can be involved. I mean, you mentioned being at the Capitol at the, or listening in on the hearing. Uh, you know, we, folks need to be in those hearings, in those committees. They need to be, uh, you know, contacting their members when and expressing or members of their uh uh, legislature and uh, state legislature and in Congress uh, telling them to pass things like the PRO Act, uh, to do things like pass the raise the wage, the wage act, which would raise the federal minimum wage to 15 an hour um, in the at the state level, repeal preemption, which prevents local governments from raising their wages and uh, passing paid leave. 
um, do things like um, repeal right to work at the state level, which is still an, an option. Um, and then, of course, uh, getting engaged with the labor movement's uh, involvement in improving democracy uh, through uh, civic engagement and electoral politics, too. So um, everybody like I'm not a card carrying dues paying uh, union member myself, but I've reaped the benefits of it. And everybody can, uh, like was stated earlier, um, if we throw our weight and, and support behind behind them in these fights. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Thank you all so much uh, for these answers. It's been really insightful. Um, and I hope that people who are listening, um, you know, take take those words and really follow through, because I do agree. I mean, you know, these committees or these hearings seem like they just pop up from the sky. Uh, you know, with a week's notice, but if possible, you know, get involved, be there, um, listen in. If you can't, you know, they, you know, Mississippi has made bounds and now that we can stream them live, which is something that hasn't always been there, but even just listening to, to hear what's going on, because it is important. Um, even if you, you know, move away or you work for a company that's national, um, you know, looking out for our neighbors, because a lot of Mississippians, are um, having to deal with these, you know, working conditions and um, suffering because of things like, um, you know, right to work or just not having equal pay. So it's something like you said, you can you can get involved in even if you're not directly impacted, because, you know, if we pass these laws, if we have better working conditions, our state will be better. And so I think, you know, there's a, there's a spot for everyone and everyone should be involved. But again, you know, thank you all for, for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate it. And um, um, look out for, for Santioni and Alex, uh, you know, their work. And I hope to, to see y'all continue um, fighting for, for workers, not only in Mississippi, but across the country. <laughs>